We turn in God's Word now this morning to Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 13, Philippians 4, 10 through 13, and we want to uh, take as a starting point these verses that Paul writes at the conclusion of his letter, dealing with uh, a number of matters as he writes to the church in Philippi. But we want to take these verses as a starting point to consider discontentment, its anatomy and its remedy. We're going to be kind of surveying scripture, beginning here in Philippians, but then really looking at Israel in the Old Testament, looking at Jesus in the New Testament, and then looking at our own lives in the midst of what scripture says, in the midst of all that. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. This is God's holy word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. May God add his blessing to his word. Everything in this world is dripping with discontentment. Um, you don't need to be reminded of that. You, you probably are every single day. Uh, our hearts are full of discontentment as well. And, uh, you know, everything, everything in our world, the default setting is discontentment. Discontentment with God, discontentment with God's provision, who we are, what we are, and so on and so forth. And, and Paul realizes this. He says as much. He says in verse 11 that he has learned the supernatural grace of contentment. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He has to have learned this supernatural grace. He had to have been given this grace of God because it's not the default setting of our hearts or of the world. And he knows, as he says in verse 12, how to face any circumstance Because he is united to Christ, he knows how to be brought low, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And of course, we need to remember and we need to remind ourselves who Paul is and where he is now in life. He is in prison, in Rome. He's writing from Rome, writing to the church in Philippi, the Philippian Christians. Now, he's not in a in a dark, dank kind of place. He's under house arrest in Rome. This is what commentators believe is his first imprisonment. So he has a, a modicum of freedom and civil liberties, and yet he always has a soldier with him. He always has a guard with him. He can't go wherever he wants. He can't do whatever he wants to do. He is effectively a prisoner of Rome. And yet he says, I've learned to be content even in these circumstances. And why can Paul say that? And that's what we want to park ourselves here uh, at, this truth of contentment. Why can Paul say that? Well, contentment has to do with, I would submit to you, five things regarding God that you need to know in your bones. You need to know for yourself. You need to be convinced of these things. 
First of all, that God is good. That God is good. Second, that God is sovereign and wise and that everything in your life is advancing his good plans and purposes for your life. And Paul could say that being in uh, under house arrest in Rome. Uh, there's no way he would have been able to uh, be parachuted into Rome right, and evangelize the entire praetorium guard, which was the equivalent of our secret service that uh, controlled access to the uh, to the emperor, right? He's able to evangelize the entire praetorium guard, he tells us in um, Philippians chapter 114. Um, there's no way he would have done that unless he would have been taken under house arrest to Rome uh, as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. So all that happens in Paul's life is advancing God's divine plan. And the same is true of you. So God is good. God is sovereign and wise. Third, God loves you. God loves you. Fourth, God cares for you and gives you what you need. And fifthly, all of this is true because the Bible tells me so. We are called to have confidence in God because we have confidence in his promise and in his word. That's what contentment is. We're going to return to that in a moment. But what is discontentment, right? If contentment is composed of all of those features, all of those aspects, what then is discontent? Well, discontentment says, right, when we are discontented, our hearts say that God is not good. We suspect his nature, right? If, if God were good, this wouldn't be happening to you. Discontentment says God is not sovereign or wise, right? If he were in control, right, this wouldn't be happening to you. In events in your life, right, your suffering are detrimental to his purposes and can actually derail his plan for your life. So he's not sovereign. He's not wise. God doesn't love me. And of course, if God loved me, this wouldn't be happening to me, right? That's, that's a repeated for, refrain here. Uh, when we're discontented, we say we have no way of being assured of his favor, of his love for me. God doesn't care for me. God has abandoned me. God is withholding what I deserve, right? And then, of course, we not only doubt God, we doubt his promise. We doubt his word, uh, we refuse to live within the loving parameters of God's word. And this affects, this affects every person in our day today. And if you think about what discontentment is, right, then, then the transgender revolution makes sense in a certain sense, right? The, the, the transgender movement says God has made a mistake, right? He has not given me what I need, right? So as a result, I will grasp for a different body. I'm a, I'm a man in a woman's body. I'm a woman in a man's body, right? God made a mistake. God doesn't love me, and so on and so forth, right? And, and this, is, this is the world we live in, beloved. Uh, the social media state of our day, the 24-hour news cycle, all, all the, the various things of our lives are meant to agitate our souls, disturb our minds, and create jealousy and discontentment in our hearts uh, and Christians, uh, let's be honest, we are not immune to discontentment. We are not immune to this disease of the heart, all right? If you want to see a great example, a sad example of discontentment, um, you can turn to Israel in the Old Testament, all right? Israel in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, is a quintessential example of discontentment. Consider with me what had happened uh, to Israel, what what 
the blessings that were bestowed upon Israel, right? They were in Exodus, uh, they were in Egypt, excuse me, uh, slaves of Pharaoh, and God delivers them with his powerful right hand, and he, and he frees them in the Exodus. He, he is faithfully fulfilling his promise made to Abraham, Israel, and Jacob. And, and in that salvation of God, of Yahweh, God is slowly and systematically crushing the power of Pharaoh power of Egypt, the power of the Egyptian army, the power of all the supposed gods of Egypt, and Israel has a front row to what God is doing. This is amazing. They see the great wonders of God. They they walk on dry land through the Red Sea that has been parted. They see the ten plagues bring desolation to, to Egypt. They receive manna from above, bread of heaven. They see God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, his love, his goodness, his wisdom, working on behalf of his people. And of course, this is but an echo of Eden, is it not? Right? When God gave Adam and Eve everything in paradise. Everything. He gave them himself. He gave them his unchanging word. And yet, what happens at the first sign of trouble, even before we even get to manna and bread of heaven, right? At the Red Sea, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, look over at Exodus chapter 14. We'll see a number of passages here from uh, the Pentateuch. Exodus 14, verse 11, right? <clears throat> they're crossing, they're about to cross the Red Sea. I mean, think of this. Yahweh just crushed Egypt, no problem. Easy peasy. What, what is the Red Sea to Yahweh? <laughs> the Red Sea can prevent Yahweh's plan from taking effect? Absolutely not. And yet, what does Israel say? They said to Moses, verse 11, chapter 14 of Exodus, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in, in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Right? There's something wrong here, Moses. You're, you're obviously intent on killing us. God is intent on killing us. Look over at Exodus chapter 15. They have no bread. And so what happens? Exodus 15 verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses. They have no water, excuse me. The people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. In Exodus chapter 16, they have no bread. And so uh, Exodus 16 verse 2 and 3 tell us, Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Um, And the people of Israel said to them, With that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They can say this with a straight face. <laughs> this is what discontentment does to our hearts, beloved. It, it, it makes us delusional. There's no water at Massa, Meribah, Exodus 17. We're told that the people quarrel. There's no meat to eat. Numbers 11, we're told that Israel weeps again and they say, oh, that we had meat to eat. Um, when it's time to send out the 12 spies to spy out the land, of Canaan here, God is about to give them the land that has been promised to their forefathers. Israel says, no, we refuse to believe that God has brought us here to give us this land. The ten spies have told us that the giants, that the people of this land are giants. 
surely God has brought us here to kill us, right? Uh, they would rather time and again choose slavery than enjoy God's good provision and his wisdom. And so this tells us, does it not, that this contentment has nothing, beloved, nothing to do with what you have or don't have. Looking back at Philippians chapter 4, right? Um, Paul tells us he's, in, he's under house arrest. He's a prisoner of Rome. He says, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret of contentment. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in ev- any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, we would look at that and say, Paul, you're crazy. You can only have contentment when you have a very well-padded pension fund, right? You can only be contented when you're getting the promotions and bonuses you need, you deserve at work. You can only be contented when you have finally reached the pinnacle of the American dream. And Paul says, no. Contentment has nothing to do with what you have or don't have. And likewise, discontentment. Discontentment has nothing, has nothing to do, beloved, with what you have or don't have. Discontentment has everything to do with who you think God is. Discontentment, in its heart, the heart of it, of its nature, discontentment speaks lies primarily about God. Think of Israel once more. God had saved Israel from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery. God had revealed his will to them. God had so abundantly provided for Israel. And yet, what does Israel do? Israel thinks so little of God's mercy, and their heart was turned against God. For 40 years, think of this. Again, we're trying to enter into the the nature, the anatomy of discontentment here. Think of the insanity. For 40 years, Israel had an abiding suspicion of Yahweh. God is not good. God is not sovereign. God is not loving. God does not care for us. We cannot trust God at his word. And this is what a discontented heart does. If this is you this morning, perhaps you will resonate with what is being said here because this is who you are. This is who we are, beloved. Discontented hearts treat God with suspicion and question God time and again. When you're discontented, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God's goodness. You're rejecting God's wisdom. You're rejecting God's revealed will. You're rejecting his sovereignty by rejecting and grumbling against his providence that he sends your way. You're rejecting God's care when you say, I know better than God. You're saying, I'd rather have the slavery of Egypt than God. This is the insanity. This is part of the anatomy of discontentment. So how do we fight against this disease of the heart? Well, we have to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we do so in Matthew 4, verse 1. Matthew 4, verse 1. Here we find the very well-known story of the wilderness temptation of our Lord. We need to consider Jesus in his temptation, who is the new Israel, 
we're being told that there's a parallel here between uh, Israel and Jesus, right? They have both ascended the waters, Israel and Jesus, uh, or rather Jesus like Israel. They have, uh, after 40 days, like Israel's 40 years, are confronted with a temptation. And they are in the desert. And the devil appears to Jesus, just like the devil appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden, or to Israel in the wilderness. So we're being told that the story of mankind is being retold. This is the same struggle and the same temptation, but there's something different here. This is rather the final and definitive chapter of the story, because here is the second Adam. Here is a true Israel, the true king, who will give us the victory. And here comes the slithering serpent once more. We're told the first temptation having to do with God's provision in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. The devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus, you deserve bread. Jesus, you deserve this. You're the Son of God, for crying out loud. Christian, you deserve this. You need this. You want this. You know it. The problem is, Christian, that God needs help providing for you. Jesus, God has forgotten you, but you can do this on your own. That's the temptation of the tempter. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 4, verse 4. It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, and we are to say in Jesus, my nourishment, my food is not fundamentally bread or the things I have or don't have, but my nourishment is God. I live not by what enters my mouth and my stomach, but I live by by the revealed will of God. What has God said? God will provide what I need in his time and in his manner. And so I don't grow despairing or restless because God is good. God is wise. God is almighty. And God will provide for me. Well, the tempter comes back in the second temptation. And he asks about not God's provision this time, but about God's protection In verse 5 and 6, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And here what Satan is trying to do, just like he tries to tempt us to do, is to test God and evaluate God by human standards. God, however, will protect you in a manner that he sees fit, right? There's a little bit of emotional manipulation here in this temptation. And this is what we oftentimes do, is it not? If God does this for me, then I'll serve him, right? Then I'll know he's really God. If God does this for me, then I'll worship him. Then I'll come every Lord's Day to his temple. Then I'll know that he's really good. No. God has spoken, right? What does it say, verse 7, that Jesus said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, God is good. God is true. And let every man be a liar. Beloved, you need not test God. 
You need not evaluate his word with suspicion because God is good. God is sovereign. God cares for you. God loves you. And you know this because the Bible tells us so. And then the third temptation. Will God give Christ all authority in heaven and on earth? Not dealing with provision or protection, but with God's promotion. And the devil uh, tempts him once more. He says in verse uh, 9, All these, all these kingdoms of the world I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And what does Jesus say? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You can have all of this now, Satan says, as long as you have it on your terms, which is to say on his terms. Life on your own terms is nothing different than worshiping Satan himself. But what does Jesus say? Be gone! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You are not to serve God on your terms. You are to serve God on his terms. And what has God promised to Jesus, his son? All things. God the Father will give Jesus all things. But how will Christ receive all things, all authority in heaven and on earth, when he suffers death as God's obedient servant on the cross? What Satan offers here is a cheap easy way to glory. No humiliation, no cross, no suffering, no death, no service. And yet, the way to the crown is through the cross of Christ. The kingdom, the glory, the power will be given to Christ, the God-man, by his Father when he obeys as a humble servant. It won't be grasped by Jesus in discontentment. And that really is the Christian life, is it not? The Christian life is given, not grasped. The Christian life is a life following Jesus, our Savior. Adam is grasping in the garden. Israel is grumbling in the desert, demanding all of humanity, full of discontentment. But what is Christ? Not grasping, but in humility, obeying God, loving God above all else, and given all things by his Father. Where mankind fell, Jesus triumphs, and now you see, beloved, in Christ, in Christ you are called to do the same. In Christ you are freed to wait upon God, to trust God, to see God as good, as wise, as sovereign, as loving, as caring. Just like Paul imprisoned in Rome, you can say, as the hymn says, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. And so what is the remedy, beloved? The remedy is to follow Christ. It's to follow Christ, to turn ourselves, not back to devolve upon ourselves, but to turn ourselves to the triune God, to understand what God has said in Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And so in your discontented moments, with your discontented heart, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, you, you must grab yourself by the collar and you must, you must speak to yourself. You must speak to your heart and say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you discontented with God? Heart of mine, oh soul of mine, are you self-entitled with God? Are you demanding something that he has not given you? 
Do you not see that God has given you all things? All things. Because he has given you his beloved begotten son, Jesus Christ. And in him, God has given you all things and provided much more than what you simply need in Christ. But you must confront your heart. You must not give your lying self any room to indulge in unwarranted expectations and fantastical illusions about what you deserve in life. You must direct your heart back to God. To God. Because God is good, because God is sovereign, because God is wise and He loves you and He cares for you. And because you know all of this through the Bible that tells us so. What can you do? How shall your life be different? Well, because all of these things are, th- are true, beloved, you are to live in thanksgiving to God and to others. You are to depend upon God in prayer, which is the most important part, as the catechism says, of the gratitude we owe to God. Because all of these things are true, you, you are called to live a sexually faithful life, whether married or single, because God has provided for you. Because all of these things are true, that God is good and sovereign and wise and loving and cares for you, you can stop comparing yourself to others. You are what you are by the grace of God. You can go to sleep at night. You can close your eyes knowing that God takes care of you. You can stop making bad decisions in life, trying to write your own life without God according to your wisdom. You can have hardiness in all of life, No pity party, no bitterness, looking to yourself. No, now you are called to look to Christ who gives you all things, who has loved you and given his own life for you, for your salvation. You can tithe. You can give 10% of your gross income to the Lord every Lord's Day, confessing God's good provision. You can be content with your spouse, with your family. Right? Is this not often the barometer of where we are with God? Right? Those horizontal relationships that are nearest to us? Is your life full of self-centered desire or in the pattern of Christ, self-sacrificial love that gives and gives and gives? How do you fight discontentment? How do you fight the lies that your heart whisper to you? You fight by turning to God, the triune God, who is good and his word that is good and your life. You fight by turning to God, who is your almighty and wise father through Jesus Christ. Everything that happens in this world and to you, just like to the apostle Paul, is advancing his kingdom and glory. You turn to God who loves you, who will never abandon you. You turn to God who cares for you and gives you what you need. And you do all of this knowing that the Bible tells me so. Beloved, no matter what our lying hearts say to us, we must live according to the public, objective revelation of God in Jesus Christ. All of this to his glory and honor. All of this because the Bible tells us so. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, do help us. Father, to live for you in the way of your commandments, to understand that the way of Christ is difficult oftentimes. It's full of great travails. And yet, Father, as hard as it is, it is a good road because it is the road of Christ, walking in the way of Christ, 
Father, to that eternal inheritance which we have even now, that we will have in full on the last day, perfect sinless communion, eternal communion with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father, hear us and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.